News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Where were you when? That's the question that we always ask, right? When we have these really big world events and so much of that is shaped around what we watch on TV. Well, we know what a lot of people were doing on Sunday. They were watching the Super Bowl because the ratings are through the roof. And you know what? That's not the first time that's happened. We're going to break it all down now with our Scott Schatz. Good morning, Scott. Good morning. Yeah, the ratings, uh, as John Strait was mentioning to you, 123 million people in the States, 10 million people in Canada. And those are people that were like actively watching. If you count the tune-in numbers, those numbers almost double. In Canada, it goes up to 19 million in the States, close to 200 million. And that is in the conversation of most watched program of all time. Now, number one spot was the lunar landing. Uh, that's 650 million globally, but the ratings were different then. So they're saying between 120 and 150 million people watched that in the States. Right. So but let's also put there. that into perspective right. in terms of far fewer television sets yes. at that time and a smaller population. So when you look at it like a per capita kind of situation, I'm guessing way more people watch the lunar landing sure. just because of the concentration. But this does give you an idea how huge of an event we're talking about by comparison. Well, for sure. I mean, since that event, it's just been Super Bowls. Like if you look at the top most watched broadcasts in the States of all time, the top 10, no, sorry, the top, the top basically 17 are all Super Bowls. And then the finale of MASH is... is Boy, like I, the, I never thought that was a record that would be broken because the, the finale of MASH was so big. 106 million people in the States watched the finale of MASH. That was insane. That was absolutely insane. Canada, obviously, our numbers are a little bit different. Uh, this is a point of pride for me. The Golden Goal was the num- is the number one thing most watched in Canada. 16 million people watched that in I 2010. Believe I believe it. Yeah, that was a big event. I know exactly where I was and what happened during, I, I remember it crystal clear. Uh, 27, peop, 27 million people watched that in the States. Do you know where I was? Where? Here. <laughs> I was station. working. Yeah. I was working. Yeah. Uh, I was uh, hosting, we used to have an afternoon show on the weekends uh, with Sean Leslie. And so I was subbing for Sean Leslie during that game. And it was one of those occasions, Scott, where you knew Nobody's listening. I, yeah. I, I feel like I could probably could have said anything I wanted to in that moment. Sure. Nobody was listening. Yeah, yeah, of course. I was. I remember I was. we were at a, uh, a friend's house with a big group of people, and everyone just immediately jumped up and cheered. And, yeah. like, I remember hearing so Sidney Crosby yelling, Iggy, Iggy, like we all remember, you know, to Jerome McGinley. So it's just classic moment. Yeah. So the finale of MASH is there. We talk about other shows that everybody has watched. Uh, Seinfeld, 76 million people watched. Watched the finale of that. Friends, 52 million. This was interesting. This brought me back because I remember this and I know you will too. The 1994 women's figure skating at the Olympics. Oh, Nancy Kerrigan, Tanya yes, Harding. That's the one. Yeah, because there was so much, so much kind of hype around that and crazy. I remember being glued to oh, that. Everybody My wanted family, to see it. we were all just with bated breath. Is that when... Tanya Harding's skate lace broke yes. and then she had the, she cried. And Everybody she thought, was, what is going on? Totally. She was skating to Jurassic Park. I remember that. Right. That was the music because that came out that year. And I was like, whoa, a song that I know when I was, however, you know, 12 years old or whatever. That was big. So yeah, there's been some really, really cool moments. But interestingly, on the Super Bowl thing, a couple of other interesting st- statistics that came up. Also, without, this probably won't come as a, as a surprise, the most bets ever placed in Nevada. 15,000 bets a second. On the Super Bowl? On the Super Bowl. This is in Nevada, by the way, Las Vegas, where the game was played, right? So we wouldn't, that wouldn't count if you were placing a bet here, but because you can bet online so easily, and not every site is releasing their betting numbers, but double the amount of bets that were placed on last year's Super Bowl were placed on this year's Super Bowl. Oh, I feel like if we're going to start talking about sports betting, this is a completely different topic because I'm getting more and more apprehensive about sports betting, that it's out of control. 
Well, let's talk about this then. Uh, the Taylor Swift factor. Did oh, that boy. make a difference? Sure. Well, so Bob Backish, he's the president of Paramount Global, which is the company that owns CBS. He said, without a doubt, Taylor Swift is incremental to, uh, to the audience on the NFL. She's a great addition, widening the net of the NFL viewer even further. So people who've been questioning whether or not the NFL loves this, they oh, love, love it. it. They love also, it. Also, you know, CBS, it, it depends on who's hosting the Super Bowl every year, what network is showing it. It was CBS this year. And I was telling Scott before the show, one of the funny things I thought was in the United States, they also aired it on Nickelodeon, which right. is a children's channel. And so children's, so, you know, kids could watch it. And like, why would they want to watch the Super Bowl? Oh, I don't know. Because Dora the Explorer would pop up and explain football things to them. And I thought... This is A, hilarious, B, genius. I think that is actually so cool because I remember watching those type of events like the 1994 figure skating and being kind of aware of what's going on, but also not totally aware. Like I know who's playing and I know kind of what the score is and stuff, but to have a character that I relate to that I know come up and explain it to me, make me feel like I am a part of the audience and I'm a part of that that room, like my family that, you know, as a young person, I want to be in that. I think it's totally genius and it's going to grow their fandom, NFL Even fans more. in the long term as well. So when you talk about elite sports leagues now worldwide, not just American, is it fair to say that you have FIFA? Yes, and, FIFA's number one. And the NFL? Uh, I think so. Yeah, I think so. I think the average wa- viewership for like a hockey night in Canada game is like two or three million. It's very low. Uh, NBA is higher, obviously. Major mm-hmm. League Baseball higher, but nothing compares to the Super Bowl. And of course, they've done an amazing job making it a huge, huge, huge annual event. What do you think it is about this particular, about the Kansas City Chiefs? Because this is two years in a row. The record that they broke this year was set last year. Right. So last year was a hugely watched Super Bowl. This year... They- it was up in Canada even by 16%. Yep. What is it about this team? Is it this team? What is it? Okay, so I was listening to something yesterday that was talking about dynasty and calling the Kansas City Chiefs are the next dynasty. Patri- heir of the Patriots and Tom Brady, that's over. And now it's Patrick Mahomes, Travis Kelsey, and the Kansas City Chiefs. So I do think that. I, do, I think that there's a lot of people who have gone all in on Patrick Mahomes. His haircut has become super popular. And then I also think, Simi, that the Taylor Swift thing is a huge factor. That's this year. I kind of put you, it over yeah, the top. I really do. That much. It's been it's been the headline for That's months. Amazing. For months it's been the headline on like all of the gossip sites, all of like everything. It's as soon as you mention Taylor Swift, you mention her boyfriend. This really is amazing. That, that That's the air. No wonder um, companies are willing to spend so much money to get the sports rights because in this day and age, that is the only way to guarantee these huge audiences. These yeah. are sporting events that draw eyeballs. Why? Because it's unscripted. You don't know what's going to happen. It's truly the only thing left that can might the ending might surprise you. And people want to be a part of the collective experience. They want to talk about it around the water cooler the next day. That, that's you know, true. It's all of that. And again, like you say, of course, the networks want it $7 million for a 30-second commercial. Well, and I would say given the... Public, the spinoff publicity from that, it's probably money well spent. Absolutely. No question. So interesting. Scott, thank you for that. You got it. If you want to join our discussion, please do. Simi at CKNW.com. I'd be curious to hear the event that you remember watching on TV. Like, is it a Super Bowl? Do you talk to, yeah, I saw that. Oh yeah, I saw that when that happened. I couldn't believe they did that in overtime. Or is it a TV show? Is it one of these events that we talked about? Let me know. Simi at CKNW.com. This is Mornings with Simi. It is time now for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. Let's talk about housing this morning again. What is going on? Well, uh, the Premier has been talking about this for 18 months since he first decided or announced he was seeking the leadership of the NDP. And that is that the B.C. government is going to start building housing for the missing middle, for people of middle incomes who can't afford housing, and government hasn't been doing that. It builds social housing and housing for the needy, uh, housing for the traditional groups that government builds housing for. But today we get the launch of BC Builds, uh, David Eby's plan to build housing for the missing middle. Okay, what is so special about this that we have not heard before? 
Well, you know, I mean, you go, we've had a lot of housing announcements from this government. So you get a, a press conference and they'll announce they're building housing at the universities for students. Or there'll be a news conference with Indigenous people and they're building Indigenous housing because BC started to do that. Uh, you get social housing, all kinds of social housing projects. You got the announcement recently where the government announced it was uh, buying up a couple of co-ops uh, to keep them from being torn down or redeveloped. And that's for affordable rental housing. But the concept we're going to hear about today, and it's uh, innovative, I don't think any government anywhere in Canada has ever tried this before, you're going to get a technical briefing at 9 and a rollout at 10.30 of a housing plan for EB's definition of the missing middle. So we don't have the numbers and we don't know how precise they're going to be, but essentially what the government has done, Simi, is assemble an inventory of public land. So owned by the province, by its agencies, by local municipalities, uh, crown corporations, and indigenous people. And that land is going to be used to build, I'm putting quote marks around it because they haven't defined what affordability is yet. That's going to be used to build affordable housing for people who cannot afford housing. These are people who have jobs, who don't meet the qualifications for all the other social housing programs. These are, Evie's definition, the missing middle, the people that we're not building housing for, that can't afford housing and don't qualify for some of the um, lower income subsidies or don't fall into groups like students, uh, seniors, indigenous, for whom the government is already building housing. Okay, so do a we, lot of questions here. I was just going to say, do we know how this is going to work then? How do you apply for this? Where is it going to apply? What is? What do you do? You know, that is going, those are going to be the big questions. And I don't know how much they're going to tell us about this. But if you start thinking, if you if you start telling people, this is for people who can't afford housing. How many people are there out there who can't afford housing? You know, they're lots. They, they've got a job, uh, they've got a partner, they're both saving up, but staggered by how much money you have to put up just to qualify for a mortgage. They're looking and looking and looking, and they're being driven into the rental market because that's all they can, or, you know, that sort of thing. So I, I, I don't think there's any question that there's a need out there, but. The question you immediately go to is, how many people are actually out there who qualify? How many people that are going to be listening to the news today, Simi, and say, I like one of those pieces of property or, you know, the one of those housing projects? The government presumably is going to finance the projects as well to keep them affordable. Uh, you're going to need at least some definition of who qualifies. Will it be means tested by income? So you'll still have to qualify. Uh, how will they decide where all this is going to go? Uh, they've got, according to what we've been told, Simi, one of the reasons it's been taken so long to put this together, 18 months, is because they had to assemble this inventory of land. Because unless you know this, right, unless the government can deliver the land for free or next to nothing, uh, you, the, the, the construction cost will eat up everything anyway. So uh, it's a big launch, a uh, very big thing. And Simi, you know, the New Democrats, one of the things they do best is launches, right? You get the tech briefing, you get the press conference, you get the, right. the premier surrounded by validators who are saying this is wonderful. You get the glorious predictions of where this is going to lead. And they kind of hope that the news media won't check up after the fact and find out what they've actually done in the next six months or eight months or whatever. Okay, so we will be talking a lot about that. Are, are municipalities on board for this, by the way? I think some of them are, yeah. No, no, I, you know, the municipal governments, federal government, uh, all, all governments in the country have latched on to the awareness that one of the biggest problems in Canada, and you can blame it on whatever you want, is a shortage of affordable housing. And huge numbers of people can't afford housing. Many people have given up on the idea, right? They, they don't, aren't able to tap their parents, 
they don't already own something that they can move up to. They're scrambling in a rental housing market. They are frustrated by how long it takes to get things approved and built. You put all that together, there's a real problem out there. And you're right, some local governments have bought into it. In fact, some local governments will say, we've had plans ready to go for some time. We've had land ready to go for some time. And it's the provincial bureaucracy that's been the obstacle. The federal government is focused on it as well, but and, and Ottawa has a lot of crown land, but yeah, there's the problem with Ottawa, right? They want credit for it, right? Okay, that makes sense. It's their land. But just getting all of this in motion is a huge challenge, even with the best of intentions. And I will say this, I don't think there's any lack of good intentions on the part of all three levels of government. Vaughn, but you made a point earlier about how this particular David Eby government is really good at announcing stuff, like launching stuff, but the follow through is not always great. Now, is that going to change because we're in an election year and this stuff needs to work? Uh, That is a key question, which is how patient is the public going to be with these announcements? So I'll give you an example. January of last year, David Eby, press conference, he's only been premier for a few weeks. Uh, The government is going to put a half a billion dollars into a fund to buy rental housing projects, keep them from being torn down or demovictions, keep them going, keep them affordable, and they're going to partner with nonprofit associations to do this. And the premier says it. We're going to be able to do this within 60 to 90 days. That was January 2023. Well, they finally got around to announcing the first purchase earlier this month. It's a good one. A couple of aging co-ops, 290 units altogether, $71 million out of that half a billion dollars, and there's one done. But that's one done. Well, you think about today's announcement, BC Build. BC Builds places aren't built yet, and we don't know how long it's going to take or where they're going to be, but, you know, the premier is going to raise expectations of people who can't afford housing, that affordable housing is on the way, how long before those units will actually be there. Uh, My guess is um, we'll be tracking this for some time before we actually see results. You may see a few groundbreaking ceremonies before the election, not to be too cynical, But the actual housing to move into, you know, how long does it take to build? uh, build A long time. A long time. A long time. You know, and, and, you know, there's a whole bunch of other problems associated with that. Zoning and permits and infrastructure and servicing, even with the best of intentions, even with Victoria pushing, shortage of workers to build stuff. All of that is a factor. So spectacular launch today. They're very good at that, this government. And they kind of hope that we won't be going around grudgingly checking up on whether or not they actually delivered within a reasonable period of time. Right, because we've seen this before. This is also with this program that was meant to help out downtown businesses. Yeah, our our colleague Rob Shaw has a terrific piece in Business of Vancouver website today on one of these things that got a huge push and it's gone nowhere. So last November, Premier announced $10.5 million, that's a lot of money, to help small businesses in downtown areas that were suffering repeated vandalism, windows smashed, damage, couldn't afford insurance, or their insurers had slapped such a high deductible on it that you know, there was no point in even filing a claim. So $10.5 million. Now, Rob is one of those reporters who goes and checks up on the delivery. And he's got a piece today recording that of the $10.5 million, after three months, the New Democrats have actually dispensed $71,000. No. That's all they've laid out to all these businesses. And... Shaw has talked to the businesses about why that is, and this includes some of the businesses that actually validated the announcement and said it was welcome. The bureaucracy, the red tape is so ridiculous that they don't qualify. They don't have a police report. Well, any business operator in downtown will tell you there's no point in filing a police report. The police won't come unless 
a hell of a lot of stuff has been stolen. Um, they don't have an insurance claim. Well, <laughs> business people have been explaining, if you file an insurance claim with your insurer, the first thing they do is raise your premiums, right? So most businesses that have had their windows smashed seven times, as is one of the examples, wouldn't, wouldn't be in their right minds to file that with your insurer. That's why they needed the provincial money, right? So this is this frustrating merry-go-round, frustrated businesses that are going, nah, the solution here is to move out of downtown, right? This, this fund, this program hasn't done a damn thing. They've spent, they've managed $71,000 is all they've managed to qualify for. And I see the minister in charge, Brenda Bailey, is telling, I am aware, Brenda Bailey, she's telling Rob, I'm aware there's a problem with this, and by gosh, we're working on it, right? I see another major validator press conference coming up. Uh, <laughs> is that your crystal ball? Vaughn, are you looking at your... news event. <laughs> You're looking in your crystal ball, you're predicting that? Yeah, no, this, I mean, this is a good example. You know, there's a, there's, apparently there's a whole field in government studies called deliverology, where people that are experts in actually delivering government programs describe how this is done and measure it and keep track of it, right? I would say we have a case for deliverology here in British hmm. Columbia, whatever you want to do, somebody wants to write a book about it, they can. But this one, the, the, a program well-intentioned to help small businesses cover their vandalism and security costs uh, so far. Again, that's the number. Rob worked it out, I think, at this rate of dispensing the $10.5 million. It'd take 37 years for that. Oh, boy. Maybe they were afraid there would be too much take-up, right? And that the fund would run uh, out. And so they yeah, put a know, few barriers in true. place. Or, you know, the other thing that, uh, that kicks in always, this will be an issue with BC Builds, is, you know, if you're dispensing public money, there needs to be rules to say who gets it, because you don't want favoritism and you don't want corruption. So you have to have rules for dispensing it. And that'll be questions today with BC Builds. You know, there's going to be a whole number of people out there who say, I can't afford housing. I want one of these housing units, right? Understandable. The government said they're going to be available and they're going to be affordable. But who's going to qualify? How are they going to decide on the, who qualifies? Where are the units going to be? Uh, how soon are they going to be delivered? Those are all the questions we'll be asking today. And we'll see how well they do navigating those questions. All right. And we will be breaking it down with you tomorrow. So, Vaughn, thank you. Bye-bye, Simi. That is Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. As always, if you want to weigh in on what Vaughn had to say, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Honey doesn't buy you happiness, or does it? That's what our Scott Chance is tackling today. Scott, what do you think? Well, okay, so one of, I say this quote all the time, and I believe, I hope I'm attributing it accurately, that it is from David Lee Roth, the lead singer of Van Halen, that money doesn't buy happiness, but it can buy me a boat to sail right up alongside of it. <laughs> and I, I accept that. Yeah, and I think that, the, I think you maybe had um, some other stronger wording in there. I'm like re removing a few words that aren't appropriate for the air. But yeah, this idea that money doesn't buy happiness has been preached to us for forever. And a few years ago, I think it was around 2010, a research paper came out that really, really cemented that idea that after a certain amount between like 60 and $80,000, depending on where you live, you don't get any happier depending on how much more money you make. Now, one of the researchers who did that original paper has continued to do his research and has said, yeah, actually, now that I know a little bit more and we understand happiness a little bit more, turns out that money does have an effect on our happiness. Shocking, right? So I talked to another researcher who's been involved in this. His name is Kostadin Kushlev. He's an assistant professor at Georgetown University, their psych department. He's interested in happiness and how we measure happiness and surveying happiness, all that type of thing. And, you know, I asked him, like, who's surprised by this? Like, no one, right? Kostadin, were you surprised to find out that, yeah, money actually does contribute to our happiness? No, I wasn't surprised. And indeed, a lot of research uh, now and 
uh, previous research suggests that, yes, money is related to higher happiness um, and certainly with uh, higher life satisfaction, right? So the way we think about our lives is associated with how much money uh, we make. So the findings here aren't uh, super novel, but there is a positive relation between income and happiness that is pretty well established. So why did we lean so heavily into this idea that money doesn't buy happiness. I remember my parents telling me that, teachers telling me that. Um, we're so we were we were kind of driven away from finding our contentment in finances. Why do you think that narrative was pushed so hard? Well, even though money can buy some happiness, uh, the research suggests that it doesn't buy us a lot of happiness, uh, and it uh, so it, there is something. True to uh, the saying, um, because most people assume that if they make a lot of money, they'll be a lot happier. Where it, whereas in reality, what the data suggests is that even if you make double, triple, quadruple the income that you make right now, uh, on a daily basis, you might feel a little bit happier, but not as much as most people expect. The happiness goes down as the amount goes up, but it still does add. And I think that sort of makes sense. Like the number that had kind of been out there, I've heard this number before, around $75,000, which feels like kind of a median middle range income. But it's like if I knew that if I made more than that or if people make more than that, maybe not necessarily that life will be happier, but certainly things would get easier. Exactly. Yeah. And... The latest research does suggest that the more you make, the happier you feel. But again, the effect is very small. So to give you a sense, so if you imagine a 100-point uh, scale where people say I'm not happy at all is zero, I'm super-duper happy uh, is a 100-point scale, the difference between making 15000 a year and 250000 a year, according to the latest research, is only five points on that Uh, 100-point scale, right? So there is no um, point at which, you know, making more money does not make you happier, uh, but the entire relationship uh, is pretty weak. Right. It's like the law of diminishing returns, I suppose. Now, does it matter at all what what we spend the money on? Does that make a difference? Yes, of course. So that matters a lot more than exactly how much we make. And uh, some great recent research suggests that actually pro-social spending, uh, which means when we spend money on others, uh, on um, charity and so forth, uh, that is actually more strongly associated with uh, happiness than spending money on ourselves, for example. Now, do you think that this is going to uh, make a change in the way that people pursue careers? Because we also, I think that it's generally accepted that there's a certain nobility in pursuing um, a, a career that not necessarily for the money. I mean, the money is always important and we trust that that will come, but pursuing altruistic careers or careers that, you know, are in a field that um, are, is important to us, maybe the arts, maybe something that, you know, is a family business, those type of things. But if we accept that, you know, money is going to lead us to more happiness, is there a danger that people might pursue, look for a career strictly based on finances. Yes, that's exactly the problem and probably why our parents tried to teach us uh, that money does not buy happiness, right? Because what we want to avoid is uh, to, you know, spend all our time trying to gain and earn more money, right? Because when you are spending all your time focused on money, you're not focused on other things that actually have a large impact on our happiness. And, you know, the secret to happiness, uh, much more so than money, is our relationships with other people, right? And so, yeah, so you're completely right that um, hopefully money comes as a reward of uh, our interest and our hard work um, and our intrinsic motivation to do good in the world. Uh, But uh, if we spend all our time pursuing more money, uh, we might actually neglect the other things that are important in life and end up 
uh, being less happy. That's Kostadin Kushlev. He is an assistant professor at Georgetown, studies happiness, finances, uh, clinical psychology, all of that type of stuff. I think, uh, Simi, the wise sage Charles Montgomery Burns said it best. I like being rich, but I'd trade it all for just a little bit more. (laughs) Yeah, okay, I get that. I think the idea here, though, is... Sure, there's some things that money can buy you, but in the end, if you're not, if those are those alone are not going to make you happy. No, they're not. But also, let's not negate this idea that like, oh, hey, I'm doing this thing that I love doing, but I'm not making any money. You're still going to be miserable if you can't afford the things that you need to live a, a relatively stress-free, not stress-free, but like a lower level stress, like a manageable life. Is it a personality thing then we're talking about here, Scott? Is it that some people are just going to find ways to be happy and more positive than other people are? With regardless less, of I- Think, yeah. conditions and what you have. Yeah, I think learning to be happy with less is a part of it, but let's not make that an excuse for us to just be paid less, Simi. I'm trying to build a case here. We all need raises. <laughs> oh, I get it. Is it that time of year? I don't know. I'm, uh, maybe. <laughs> good luck to the boss on that one, Scott. Thank you. You got it. That is our Scott Shots. If you want to weigh in, does money buy happiness? Give us your thoughts on that. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Do you work from home? Maybe even a couple of days a week or you have a home office where you do some work. Well, if you do, then you know one of the reasons people like doing that is that there are certain tax deductions you can take advantage of. Makes sense, right? Well, maybe it did, but things are changing. So listen up. With tax season upon us, there are new rules about home office deductions. Now, I am not a tax expert, which is why we have brought in Jamie Gollenbeck, who's Managing Director of Tax and Estate Planning with CIBC Private Wealth. Jamie, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So are these big changes? Well, they're big changes in terms of making things a little bit more complicated. You see, when people started to work from home during COVID and the pandemic, there was a simplified. You didn't have to keep track of any of your home office expenses. You were able to claim $2 a day up to a maximum of $500. You simply wrote that off. You didn't need any kind of letter from your employer. No forms needed to be filled out. As long as you were working home, you know, from home uh, for your employer due to COVID, uh, you were writing off $2 a day. The rules are now changing for 2023. We're going to need your actual detailed expenses, and you're going to need a form from your employer as well. This sounds ripe for confusion, Jamie, <laughs> for the first year. Well, it, it, it's a little confusing and it's a little complicated, right? And, and for many people, it may not even be worthwhile doing, right? Because, you know, for the uh, typical employee, if you actually own your own home, uh, then you can't write off your mortgage interest. You can't write off your principal payments on your mortgage. You can't write off your property taxes. So what's left? What's left are utilities. So when, what you have to do is add up all your utilities for the year and then you've got to prorate it based on the percentage of space that you're using for work. So when you add all that up and you do the calculation, if it's 5 or 10% of your home and you're a homeowner, you may not have a big amount to deduct. On the other hand, if you're renting uh, and rent is a portion of those deductible expenses, it may be worth the calculation. But in any event, I think most people want to be able to deduct as much as they can. So I wouldn't be surprised if people do either attempt to, you know, do the calculation or at least hand the stuff over to their accountant or their tax preparer to do those calculations to see if you can benefit from this home office deduction. Okay, run me through this then, Jamie, one more time. What is it that you now have to do if you want to claim some of these deductions? The first thing you're going to need to do is get a copy of a signed T2200 from your employer. So your employer has to sign a form saying that you were authorized to work from home. Uh, Once you have that form, then you're going to need to calculate all of your home office expenses. So typically, if you're working from home, uh, you've got, you know, expenses like electricity. Maybe you have natural gas. uh, You've got Internet expenses, you know, any type of, you know, utility expenses. You add all that up for the year during the portion that you're working from home. And then you would basically divide your workspace from the rest of your place. So let's say you use one room out of five rooms that are all more or less equal, that would be 20%. And if that's an isolated, dedicated room where you work from home, you'd be able to write off 20% um, of those annual expenses. It gets a little bit more complicated if you use a shared space. So a lot of employees work from home, but they're in a relatively small condo, and maybe they're working from the kitchen table. 
if that's the case, they presumably also use the kitchen table for eating and for other things. Yeah. So what you're supposed to then do, you're actually supposed to prorate, not just based on the space, but in addition, further prorate that based on the number of hours. So if you're doing a 40-hour work week, divide the 40 hours by the total number of hours in the week, and then you prorate it further. So it may be, you know, 2 3 5% of your total expenses that you're then deducting on your tax return. So again, it's a little bit more complicated than it was the last few years where you could simply write off $2 a day, no need for calculations, no need to give any receipts. Okay, so then, Jamie, that begs the question, why are they doing this? If it was so simple for people before, and clearly a lot of people do work from home some of the time, why are they making it so complicated? Well, they're just going back to the old rules, like the pre-2020 pandemic rules were that if you were writing off expenses, you really need to figure out what your actual expenses are. And they're basically going back to that old system and they're saying, look, you've got to use your actual expenses and write off your real expenses. And that's the way it's always been. I think during the pandemic, when there were literally millions of people working from home, they really didn't want to bother all those employers and issuing forms and having people do all those calculations. But I guess they figure pandemic is effectively over, at least for all intents and purposes. And yes, there are still some people working from home, but there has been a, a return of push back to office. And therefore, the government is basically saying, nope. We want you to actually calculate your actual expenses. We're no longer going to allow you to use this simplified method. So, Jamie, is there any ever any flexibility in something like this? Is this does everybody have to get it right this year, or does the CRA? I know it almost seems ridiculous saying this, but are they understanding if people don't perhaps know all this? Well, not really. I mean, at the end of the day, it's your responsibility to calculate your expenses and claim an appropriate deduction. And if you don't do this correctly, then the CRA could reassess you. And you could be hit with potentially interest uh, on uh, taxes owing or even penalties uh, if they think there's some kind of fraud. But that, that's probably unlikely. But, you know, do your best. Uh, do an estimate. You know, try to get the backup receipts in case CRA asks for it. Um, but you really should comply with the laws. And if you're not sure what you're doing, speak to a tax professional, either a tax accountant or perhaps a tax preparer. They're certainly on top of the rules. They can help you get through this. So you were saying that before, during the pandemic, it was, what, $2 a day to a max of $500? You got it. Okay. That seems relatively simple, and that's also not a huge amount that people are deducting. So why make it more complicated? Why not just continue with that? Yeah, look, I think it's a great question. It's a fair question. I'm all about tax simplification. The government has chosen not to do that. They haven't issued any kind of reason why they did this. Uh, I think they just wanted to go back to the system where people, if they're wanting to write off expenses, uh, maybe they thought $2 a day was too generous <laughs> in terms of the calculation, <laughs> really? right? $500. And, you know, if you, if you look at your actual expense, if you're a homeowner and you've got some electricity and some gas and, you know, whatever that is, when you prorate it based, based on the number of, you know, square feet that you have, and you may prorate that further if the shared expense, you know, in some cases, you know, remember in prior years, some employees, they would calculate maybe their real expenses were only two or $300, and yet they were allowed to write off 500 So maybe they thought that was too generous. I don't really know. Oh, boy. Well, it keeps you busy. And, Jamie, thank you so much for the explanation this morning. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's Jamie Gollenbeck, Managing Director of Tax and Estate Planning with CIBC Private Wealth. So if you have a home office or you work from home, there are new rules about what you can claim on your taxes. And thank you to Jamie for explaining all of those to us. This is Mornings with Simi. We all care about the environment, right? I mean, who amongst us hasn't made a buying decision based on the product being more environmentally friendly than the other choice? And you know what? Companies know it too. They strive to show themselves as green because they know it's good for business. But are they actually behaving as well as they are portraying themselves? A nonprofit organization called Stand Earth is asking the Competition Bureau here in Canada to investigate Lululemon. Now, they claim the company isn't as environmental as they portray themselves, that actually they are, quote, greenwashing. So what does that mean? Are we getting taken in by companies and their greenwashing? Well, Linda Gross is a professor of fashion design and critical studies at California's College of the Arts and joins us now to talk about this. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. How would you describe greenwashing? What is it? Um, I would say that greenwashing is when a company emphasizes what they're doing without 
disclosing the percentage of what they're not doing. So they are advertising something without telling us what the results actually are. Um, well, that too. But I would say that companies generally tend to advertise uh, an environmental improvement that they've made and um, keep quiet about the improvements that they're not making, which is usually on the larger percentage of their business. How popular is this, Linda? I would say it's widespread and the norm in the industry. Across every industry or is there, is it like in the fashion industry, we know for sure this happens? Uh, well, it's rampant in the fashion industry. Yeah, let's put it that way. Okay, and um, how do they do this? In what ways does this manifest? Um, well, for example, a company might advertise that they're using organic cotton and when organic cotton is perhaps 2% of their total business, um, they might advertise that they are doing recycled polyester when, again, it's a very small percentage of their business or that they have less water in a certain process and when it's just across a certain number of units, you know, um, versus millions of units of where they're not taking action. What are the words that they use a lot of? Like we see eco-friendly, we see everything is vegan these days too, isn't it, Linda? Um, well, yeah, that, that can be problematic too, but eco-friendly is in itself um, kind of greenwashing because it's not specific. So that's a marketing term that um, puts a, a good face on a product but it doesn't tell you whether that company is looking at toxicity or if they're looking at dyes or if they're looking at carbon emissions. It's just a very general term that's sort of, let's say, customer-friendly. Right. You know, it's easy to sort of, um, it gives an image rather than disclosing anything specific. Oh, my God, that is so, so true. I'm thinking about the phrase vegan leather which doesn't really, like, it sounds really good, but then if it's not, if it's vegan leather, that still means that it's not, it's not good for the environment. Well, generally, vegan leather tends to be a synthetic, which would be fossil fuel-based, which has got high carbon emissions. Um, you know, there isn't the cruelty to animals that people might be concerned about. And then again, the processing of leather does take a lot of toxic chemicals, including chrome, which can be highly uh, toxic in the environment. So there are what we call balances and trade-offs to make. Um, but in general, if it's vegan leather, it will not harm animals. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't do all these other things that affect the environment. So Linda, how can consumers do the right thing. They, obviously, we are susceptible to these terms because we are in some way trying to do something better, right? Yeah, I think everyone perhaps is, um, you know, well-intentioned. But I think um, in, in, com in companies, uh, what is happening is two things. We are measuring the wrong thing. So companies are declaring what they are doing how they've improved a particular product, but they're not um, measuring the outcome. So even with the um, advances that companies have made, they're not doing enough of those advances to reduce carbon emissions. For example, carbon emissions are going up, even though, even though there are more and more companies talking about um, eco-friendly products. Um, so that's one thing. Um, customers, in general, What's clear is that companies are producing too much. We're overproducing. There's a tremendous amount of waste. There's a lot of carbon emissions and impacts that come from that production. And then um, we're producing more than anybody could possibly buy. And therefore, garments actually end up in landfills. Everybody's seen those images of piles of garments in Ghana in the Chilean desert, for example. Um, we're just producing too much. So companies really, if they want to reduce their carbon emissions and other impacts, need to produce less new stuff and generate new streams of income besides selling more and more products at faster speeds. This is like the fast fashion um, example, right? And I feel like people are starting to be more aware of fast fashion, but it's still a huge problem. 
It is, and fast fashion is front and centre on this. The, the tactics of the fast fashion industry have been picked up by the regular industry and even the outdoor industry too. So you'll often find that garments are changed um, many times during the year. Um, you know, you've got a greater selection of garments, different seasons that even outdoor companies have. You'll find that a product comes in multiple colours. And anybody climbing K2 or those mountains doesn't need the latest bright-coloured turquoise jacket. Um, so, you know, you find that those companies are also marketing to everyday people that wear the jackets in coffee shops and then the garments are overbuilt for use and if they're tossed aside, they don't degrade easily in a landfill. So there's, there's a lot of um, companies that are utterly dependent on selling more stuff. That's their business model, and that's the problem. That's the root problem. Right. We're also so, the problem here, too, though, aren't we, Linda? Because they're marketing it to us, and we are obviously buying it. Otherwise, they wouldn't do it. Um, well, both um, those companies do hire um, psychologists to um, identify what our burning desires are, and they will cleverly market into those desires so that we want things. So, yeah, but we know we're definitely part of it, for sure. And there's a growing market of thrift and secondhand, which, of course, has less impact because each one of those garments is, you know, it's had one owner and now it has two or three or four or five. Those extracted resources are, are in use for longer. So, there, you know, there are ways around it and we can satisfy our desire for something new uh, a, a completely new garment. There's, once you pose that as a challenge... There's lots of creative ideas that we humans can come up with. Okay, so is there a takeaway here for people in terms of if there's something they want to change today, what should they do? Um, well, for customers, um, I would say really limit your purchase of new items and, you know, uh, shop in your own closet, shop in a friend's closet, shop in your local thrift store, um, whatever that might be. And um, try and divest from fossil fuel-based garments. So synthetic-based garments um, are, uh, if you want to reduce carbon emissions, that is definitely um, a focus that you could have. Like really slow down your consumption. Really think about the speed of your closet. Not just about fast fashion, but how that speed affects your closet. What comes in, what goes out, um, how often... And just try and slow it down. Slow down the metabolism of your closet. You know what? I'm going to think about that today. Linda, thank you for your time. You're welcome. Appreciate that. Linda Gross is a professor of fashion design and critical studies at California's College of the Arts, talking about companies in greenwashing. The fashion industry is particularly bad at this. We are also susceptible to this, about falling for the company's marketing, and that is greenwashing. And now an organization, a nonprofit called Stand Earth, wants the Competition Bureau to investigate Lululemon here in Canada over allegations of greenwashing. This is Mornings with Simi. What went wrong with the Arrive Can app? If you've checked out the news about the Auditor General's report, then you know just about everything, it sounds like. From the planning to the execution, I mean, the rules weren't followed, it cost too much. Did it even work as it was supposed to? Well, Karen Hogan is the Auditor General of Canada and joins us now to talk about the report. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. Did everything seem to go wrong in planning for this app? What really stood out for you? Well, there were a lot of things that stood out for me, and honestly, I think I would summarize them as, as a glaring disregard for some of the most basic financial project management and contracting practices when it came to developing and implementing the ArriveCan application. Things that normally the public service would do well, we, we just didn't see them do well here. Is there, were you able to find out why? Like where along the way did it break down? I think the confusion started really at the start of the pandemic when the Canada Border Services Agency and the Public Health Agency of Canada were, were deciding um, how, how to split responsibilities over who would develop and implement the ArriveCan application. And they didn't agree and set out those sort of responsibilities. And then in that accountability void, 
no one set out some of the most basic things you would see when you launch a project, for example, goals and objectives or a budget. And it's really hard to manage something against a budget when you don't have one set up. And at any step of the way in your report, did you find that, did anyone raise any concerns about what was happening? Well, I think that that accountability void and that lack of, of project management included a lack of governance and oversight. So we, we found very little evidence that there was um, effective oversight over the project. And, and then when we looked at the financial records, we found that the Canada Border Services Agency wasn't keeping complete and accurate records. They, uh, they really were you know, disregarded some of the most basic financial controls you would have in order to support um, you know, transparency and demonstrate that they had received the best value for taxpayer money spent. And do we know why? Have they? Has there any explanation as to how the systems broke down? Well, we often heard that it was because of the pandemic. And I think if we try to put ourselves back in, in early 2020 or in March and April, it was really a very difficult and confusing time for everyone. And at that time, um, the, tre- the Secretary of the Treasury Board told the public service, you need to be fast and, and nimble and, and react to respond to the needs of Canadians. Um, and, and while they did do that, the application was developed and released very quickly. And we found in a previous audit in 2021 that the ArriveCan application actually supported and improve the quality of information and the timeliness of the information gathered at the border. Um, but in my view, an emergency was not an excuse to ignore the most basic requirements um, to maintain complete and accurate records and, and this lack of documentation around decision-making and around financial matters really a compromised accountability to continue. Do you have any confidence that if, you know, God forbid, something like an emergency like the pandemic were to happen again, that the same thing wouldn't happen again? Well, we've looked at other things throughout the pandemic. This is not our first audit where we would have looked at some procurement practices. And while we often found opportunities for improvement, nothing was as glaring um, as as a disregard as what we, we saw here. You know, what I would like to see going forward is that the, the government really starts to think about the things they need to invest in or maybe the things they need to automate um, before the next crisis happens because trying to react quickly in an emergency is, is not the best way uh, to move forward and not the best way to deliver good value for taxpayer money. Now, the public knows that it's pretty hard to get answers out of the Canada Border Services Agency. Did you have any better luck with that? Do you have any confidence that some of these changes will get made? And so every piece of information that we asked for, evidence that we uh, um, inquired about, we received. Um, now, often the files were very thin, and as I say, documentation I would have normally expected to be there was missing. Now, both the Canada Border Services Agency and the Public Health Agency of Canada have uh, agreed with our recommendations and intend to implement them. But I think what I would highlight here is my recommendations were really rather basic, rather obvious, and typically that's not the kind of recommendations that we would give. Um, but here it was just, look, there's rules that exist. <clears throat> Excuse me, why aren't you implementing them? And you should be. And, and that's really what our recommendations were about. So at this point, uh, given the report and everything that's in it, has there been any response from the federal government to this? Uh, well, the, the federal government uh, did respond positively, as I said, to our recommendations. And in our report on the, on the ArriveCan application, they have provided uh, some of the actions they plan to take. There are some timelines there. Um, but I guess t- time will really tell and, and see how, um, how they, they make changes that will hopefully improve contracting practices, financial record keeping, and just overall better good governance over projects at the Canada Border Services Agency. Well, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about it. It was my pleasure. Thank you. That's Karen Hogan, the Auditor General of Canada, talking about the report that she issued just came out in the last 24 hours having to do with the Arrive Can app. Like, yes, certainly there were some problems because it happened during the pandemic, but that was not the reason for throwing everything out the window, which it seems like that's actually what happened. It meant that all these different um, government agencies pretty much ignored 
the basic rules, as you heard the Auditor General explain there. And there were a number of different agencies involved in this, right? It was the Canada Border Services Agency. It was the Public Health Agency of Canada. It was Public Services and Procurement Canada. And the the line from the report that always gets me in this is, quote, repeatedly failed to follow good management practices in the contracting, development, and implementation of the ArriveCan application. So CBSA has said in the past that this app cost about $54 million to make. However, the Auditor General is pointing out that according to her calculations and the information that she had, it cost more than that. She thinks it's closer to $59.5 million, to almost $60 million. But here's the kicker. That might not even be the real and accurate number because of the poor record keeping that was done here. So the Auditor General's report says the real cost could be just too challenging to actually calculate because of how shoddy the bookkeeping and everything was here. So just a horrible situation when you think about it. And I'm so curious about the people who were in the room when this was being planned. Like, sure, there was a sense of urgency that they had been told, like, you need to pivot, you need to get this done. But does that mean that you just throw out everything that you know, that there wasn't a person who said, um, wait a minute, Guys, we're spending an awful lot of money here. Can we just stop and think about this for a second? Because this is not going to look good eventually. Clearly, that didn't happen, according to the report, because uh, nobody seemed to have a sober second thought about the amount of money that was being spent. So that's the Auditor General's report uh, into the Arrive Can app. And I feel like we have not heard the end of that yet. This is Mornings with Simi. Do you remember the plot to abduct the governor of Michigan in the United States? I mean, this was a huge story a few years ago, and it seemed so shocking at the time that people would try to do this to a sitting politician. Well, now the podcast chameleon is diving into this to find out what really happened. And let me tell you, there are so many twists and turns. I feel like it might as well be a movie at this point. Joining us now is Jessica Garrison, the host of Chameleon, The Michigan Plot. Jessica, thanks for being here. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. This does seem like quite the story. Did you even know what you were getting into when you started this? We had absolutely no idea what we were getting into. Um, I mean, we started looking at this, um, my colleague Ken Bensinger and I, back in early 2021. And, you know, sort of right after January 6th. And we thought, what we want to find out is what's going on with extremism in America. And so we started looking at this Michigan case, which was making its way through the courts. And what we found was a kind of wildly different than what we expected. In what way? Well, I mean, we, we were interested in sort of people on the far right who were, you know, raising all kinds of um, kind of attacks and questions against the kind of established democratic order in the U.S. But what we also found was how deeply involved the Federal Bureau of Investigation was in this case from day one. Day one? What do you mean? Day one. Uh, Well, I mean, there had been, you know, the FBI had managed to get an informant into this group um, kind of from their very first training. And that informant um, very quickly became kind of one of the leaders of the group. And it was that informant that kind of connected this group to it, you know, this va- this kind of very radical vacuum store clerk named Adam Fox. And he kind of put this militia together with Adam Fox. And then he kind of worked with them to come up with this alleged plot to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan. And I know that, that you know, the, the other side of this, they've tried to portray this as, well, it wasn't really serious. It was just a bunch of people talking. But if the FBI was involved from the very beginning, I don't know, Jessica, that kind of paints a different picture, doesn't it? Well, I think, you know, what's interesting about this whole case is that they never actually kidnapped anybody, right? And they never actually even bought, you know, they were arrested as they were allegedly on the way to purchase materials to make a bomb, um, which is totally terrifying. On the other hand, they never actually purchased them. So we don't know at the end of the day, would these people have done anything or not? And and we, you know, the answer is no one knows because the FBI stopped it. Um, 
And I think what's so interesting to us about the case is, you know, now that we kind of have these tapes, which allows us to hear what these people were saying, when you listen to what they're saying, you're like, well, it would be, you know, you definitely would want, you know, you wouldn't want the FBI to be like, nothing to see here, moving on. Um, On the other hand, you also hear when you listen to the tapes how deeply involved, you know, the very huge number of undercover and um, agents and informants were in this case. And you kind of wonder, well, if the FBI hadn't been in there, would anything have happened? And you don't know, which I think to me is what's so interesting about it. Okay, what do you mean by that? Well, would would any would these people have developed a plot without the FBI? And it's impossible to know because FBI informants were at every meeting. Um, they were kind of in the middle of every meeting. In some cases, they were saying, "You guys, you need a plan. You need a plan." Um, and so, I think the question becomes. Without the FBI, would there ever have been a plan or would there just have been a lot of talk? Ooh, that sounds awfully close to entrapment on some of that. Well, I mean, entrapment is a legal thing that is extremely difficult to establish in the United States. So I I think that is sort of the question, right? I mean, I think this has, you know, juries have looked at this and juries have emerged with split decisions. You know, some of these people were convicted. Some of these people were acquitted. Um, So it's very, it's kind of, I mean, it's very nuanced. It's very hard to know. And what's kind of fascinating to us is that juries never heard what you can hear in this podcast, which is hours and hours and hours of tape of what really happened. Some of it came out, very little snippets of it. But in this podcast, we were able to get huge, you know, pieces of it. And you kind of really hear who these people are and what they were saying. And it's it's amazing. Jessica, can you give us an idea of how this has changed? Like with the FBI in years past, decades past, they were criticized for not paying enough attention to these militias and to these kind of domestic issues. Does this case indicate that that has changed? I think that is, you know, I think this is one of the, this is a seminal and huge case in the FBI's efforts to combat domestic extremism. Huge numbers of resources went into it, and it it is a sign that they are really taking the threat of kind of far-right extremism very seriously. Um, And what's, you know, another thing that's interesting about this case that people have pointed out is that these are tactics that the FBI has used against Muslims, you know, and earlier than that against, you know, people like the Black Panthers. Um, And in this case, these were tactics that they used against kind of homegrown white men, um, which made a lot of people really upset. It reminds me of something that we've talked a lot about here in Canada, and that's something called the Mr. Big Sting that police Uh have here have used. It's very similar to the way you just described. So is this just like a police tactic? Um, so first of all, I love the sound of the Mr. Big Sting. I'm not familiar with it. Um, how does it work? Um, tell me. It's very similar to what you just described is, and it's been used against gangs here uh, in Canada where police infiltrate the group and they pose as a big time gangster who, you know, gets in there, offers advice, you know, makes things happen, that kind of thing, and becomes the, the kind of confidant of, of the groups. And it's been used with controversy here in Canada too, but police do continue to use this. I mean, I'm not an expert on like all, you know, police tactics, but I think in general, yeah. I mean, in order to infiltrate a group, it really helps to have someone in that group that everybody trusts. And in this case, one of the informants was so trusted by these guys that he was, you know, kind of there. He was training them. They came to him for advice. They trusted him absolutely. There are these sort of, you know, incredible moments in the tape where they're like, someone in this group is a fed. Um, But they're like, but don't worry, we know it's not you. Um, So, yeah, I think that is a tactic that works very well. um, So much psychological warfare in there, isn't there? I mean, it is, and it is, there are these, you know, I mean, at the heart of all of these always is a betrayal, right? Someone you trust turns out to be not on your side. And how did this turn out? 
What was the legal outcome in these cases? Well, in the, there were they they were all arrested, or most of them. There were fourteen people charged. Thirteen of them were arrested in October of twenty twenty right before the presidential election. Um, some of them were charged with federal crimes and some of them were charged in state court in Michigan. Um, and in, there were seven people charged in the federal case. Uh, three of them pled. Um, two of them were acquitted. Two of them were convicted. And then in the state, there were two separate state cases, one in um, Jackson County in um, kind of Central Michigan and one up in Northern Michigan and Antrim County. In Jackson County, they were convicted. And in Antrim County, some pled and some were acquitted. So it was very split verdicts. Um, you know, juries really wrestled with this and, and couldn't always decide. It is some fascinating storytelling. Jessica, thank you so much for joining us to talk about it. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. That's Jessica Garrison, host of Chameleon, The Michigan Plot. This is the latest season of the podcast, Chameleon, where they are diving into this infamous plot to kidnap the former, the governor of Michigan, uh, actually, Gretchen Whitmer. Do you remember this from a few years ago? And the this is a tale that takes many twists and turns, and it did remind me of those Mr. Big stings that we have heard used so many times, controversially, uh, here in Canada, too. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.